So many ghost stories revolve around a person's spirit attached to a place or an object. The spirit lingers because it is looking for a lover or standing guard at its post. It tries to fulfill its purpose in life, in other words. Well, the same is very true for the spirits of animals. They stand guard just like their masters as the ages pass. My story takes place on a warm summer's night on the outer banks of North Carolina. It was right before the 4th of July, and my husband and I were in Hatteras to deliver a lecture at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum. My husband grew up in Hatteras, and whenever we visit, he likes to take me to his old stomping grounds. Back alleys, overgrown graveyards, overlooked trails, and tell me stories from his past. He's a showman at heart, and he loves to tell people the stories he grew up with. This particular night, we were driving back to our hotel. I was a little thirsty from the walking we had done after dinner, and I wanted to stop for a drink. Despite it being a tourist town in the height of summer, Hatteras is still very much a sleepy little village. Most shops close up at 9 or 10, and good luck finding a bar. The only place that was open by that point was the ferry landing. So we pulled up, and I went inside to the waiting area while my husband stayed in the car. I walked up the steps, across the porch, and into the waiting room. It was quiet, and, pardon the pun, other than the night guard outside, there was not a soul to be seen on that end of the island. I paid for my drink, and just as I was about to head back down the steps, something caught my eye on the porch. It was a little gray and white cat playing with a moth. Now, this in and of itself is not unusual. Hatteras has a native population of polydactyl cats that live off scraps from the fisheries and keep the island rodent-free. What was unusual was I had no idea where the cat had come from. Like I said before, the porch that wrapped around the landing was barren when I entered, but I didn't think anything of it at the time. As I reached down to pet the cat, my husband kept shouting from the driver's side window, pet the cat, pet the cat. Of course I was going to pet it. It was a really cute cat. I bent down and gave the little guy a scratch behind the ears. The cat barely acknowledged me since it was so focused on the moth. So I got back in the car and drove off. The whole drive back, my husband was giggling and grinning from ear to ear. He could barely contain himself when we got into our room. Clearly, there was more to this chance encounter than he was letting on. Once we were in our room, he sat me down and told me a story about Hatteras, one he had been waiting to tell until I was lucky enough to witness it firsthand. Here is the story. Cape Hatteras Lighthouse is one of the most beautiful and iconic lighthouses in America. And like all lighthouses, it was inhabited by brave men who dedicated their lives to keeping the shores and seas safe for all who sailed them. However, their job was a very lonely one, so it was not unheard of for the lighthouse keepers to adopt a pet to make their days a little brighter. Not long after the first lighthouse keeper was installed at the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, the man adopted a gray and white kitten to help keep the isolation of his job at bay. The cat brought the man much joy in his lonely hours. One day, the lighthouse keeper passed away, leaving only his cat to mourn him. 
Now the villagers would send a small group to the lighthouse from time to time to resupply the keeper's provisions. The group that discovered the poor man's body came near dusk, and they knew something was amiss when they were greeted by the cat on the road leading to the lighthouse. The cat led the townsfolk down the road, chasing a moth lured by the light all the way to the lighthouse door. The townsfolk made the grim discovery inside and took the body back to the village to make funeral arrangements. They say the cat stayed near its master's grave until it too passed away. Many years later, as the waters rose and threatened to drag the lighthouse into the sea, the Cape Hatteras lighthouse was lifted and moved to a safer location. During the move, some of the base underwent restoration and a few of the original bricks were taken and given to places and families of import to the town. One brick ended up at the ferry landing we had visited that evening. After the move was done, people around town started seeing a little gray and white cat stalking around the buildings where the bricks ended up. The cat was only seen at night, always playing with a moth, always playing in the lamplight. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you shot me this look like, what was with that? What I was thought there was going to, I thought there was going to be more. What, like, what, what, what should I do? Should I do it again? Direct me. I don't know. What was in your spirit just to stop? My spirit was just get it out there and get through it. All right. <laughs> it's hard saying your own name. Do you, you, do you ever have no. that problem? No. I mean, I I feel very self-conscious about saying my name sometimes. Like, it's not a, it's not I like, I don't have trouble with it phonetically. I'm just saying sometimes it's like, and I, I'm, I'm Michael Tatum. I, there's a, I have a natural shyness that people do not believe is true when I say. Well, I think for this particular thing, mm. what has happened is you did not, you felt anxious whenever you were doing the adjective. Yes. And I, and I started doing the adjectives because I was anxious about just saying my name. And so I thought, oh, it'll be funny. I can make it funny if I put some adjective in front of it every week. And then I got anxious about, like, what adjective do I adjective. do now? And then it's like... And now you're well, projecting now I'm, that now I'm, anxiety now I'm onto back your name. Onto, well, now I'm just back where I started. Oh. Well, what can you do to not feel anxious about your name? Say it quickly like I just did. All right. <laughs> and not talk about the anxiety. I could introduce uh, you instead. We can... Hi! I'm Jamie Markey, and this is Michael Tatum. That's, I feel like that's, that's too much for you to have to do. It's unfair. Well, we could introduce yeah, each other. This is Michael T It's five words. Yeah, but it's five more words than what you already say. I, let's try this. Let's try. Okay. <laughs> let's try. Um, hi, everyone. I'm here with Jamie Markey. Mm, I don't like I'm here with. <laughs> What, okay, this is what we could do. Every time somebody, whoever does the opening, then the other person starts. So if I did it, then you would say, um, you know, hi, or whatever the fuck you want to like, say. Hi. That was Jamie Markey. And then I'll say, and that oh, was I Michael like Tatum. That. Okay, so let's pretend like you just finished okay. reading. Okay, all right. And I'll be, I'll be, that. so read me in, read me in. Okay, okay. Always playing with a moth. Always playing in the lamplight. That was read by Jamie Markey. And that was said by Michael Tatum. <laughs> that didn't work out. <laughs> I know. I, I just think I'm just going to have to work through my bullshit, Jamie. I think so, I think, too. I think, hi, I'm, I'm Michael Tatum. And this 
is ghoul intentions. <laughs> what if you do that? What if that's your new thing instead of since you can just I immediately can, I can introduce focus on getting to the ghoul intentions. So you can yeah. say, I say, hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And then you say, hi, hi I'm Michael Tatum. Michael and this Tatum, is, and this ghoul, is ghoul, intentions. ghoul intentions. And then we'll always have our introduction. I don't have to worry about forgetting it, which I do all the time. <laughs> I love that we're burning up like five minutes. I know. Well, but everybody <laughs> else it. is a part of this, this process. Is, this is the content they, they come back for. That's right. Um, what's our title today, by the, the way? The title, oh wait, really quickly, let us thank oh, yeah, yeah, Stacy yeah. for that submission. Oh, I Stacey, fucking loved such it. such a great story. Yes. I like the detail about the polydactyl cats because yes. that's also true in Key West, which is one of my favorite places on the planet. Tell the people what polydactyl means. Polydactyl means they have uh, the cats have one more toe on each paw. Mm-hmm. Than than is usual, yeah. than average. So they're just called polydactyl because technically, if you have more than one toe, you're polydactyl. <laughs> polydactyl. But I think that I'm not sure what the scientific whatever polydactyl for um, those of you that don't know. Polydactyl cat just has an extra like it looks like a little thumb. Yeah, it's like a uh, dew claw if it was fully. Well, it's realized. not as high as the dew claw. It's it's is it down lower? It's it's down here. It's it's on there. It's in line with the other oh. toes, the other little uh, appendages. Oh yeah, they have really fat feet. Yeah, they have really That's fat right. feet, and they they tend to be bigger cats. They tend to be stockier. Well, they need an extra um, toe. Hemingway was That's very what I was gonna say. It was Ernest Hemingway, Hemingway was very fond of them, and so he kept a bunch of them. And what's great about um, his house in Key West that you can go and see is everything is roped off, but the cats that still hang out there, uh, many of whom are descendants of cats that. Hemingway yeah, owned yeah. or at least let live there uh, <laughs> the cats can go any fucking where they want like there are ropes like you can look into like his writing desk and like here is where he wrote you know Farewell to Arms and you can't go in there but you can see it from the door but there's a fucking cat just sitting on the typewriter nice. <laughs> and the cat's gonna, sitting on Hemingway's bed whatever it's really funny the cats own that island well that's so it's really because cool they have that like, full extra toe they do, and cats. Cats are just understood. If you if you are allergic to cats, you don't go to Key West. I don't. Uh, without I don't a lot go of Benadryl to, because yeah. um, you they're everywhere. Like yeah. I mean, they're everywhere. It's they uh, and I'm I'm sure it's probably the same for Hatteras because like once cats on an island, they they breed a lot and cats hang out. And what's really cool with the every time I've been to Key West, the first time I went, um, I loved it, and I kept like there's something off. There's something off, and I can't place why I feel like something is off because everything about this place is magical and I adore it. What is it? It took me three days to realize there are no songbirds on the island oh. because they don't go there because of all the cats. Well, there are seabirds. If you go out to the, the beaches and stuff, there's gulls and cranes and, and yeah. pelicans and stuff. But like... There's no cute chirping. There's no chirp. There's not a lot of chirping. Oh. A lot of chickens though. A lot of... A lot of uh, roosters because people brought them over to help kill scorpions and bugs and stuff. Oh. Yeah. And iguanas so, are all over the place. Iguanas, iguanas are like squirrels that, yeah. there. Yeah, I've like, seen. They just yeah. hang out. It's and They're pests. And that's how they're they are in St. John, pests. too. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty much everywhere. So anyway, thank you, Stacy. That was yes, a lovely thank story. thank you, Stacy. That was awesome. I, I love, love that story. I love that, too. Your husband didn't say anything until after he let it happen. It's like, and he's giddy about it. a good it. intro to yeah. a story. That's really great. That's awesome. Um, but today's title is An Awfully Big Adventure. That's from Peter Pan, yes? Yes, it's from yeah Peter Pan by J M Barry. Is that how you say it? Barry 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 B A R R I. I'm not sure. Barry? I've always said Barry, but I don't know that I'm right. I don't know, but anyway, um, it's the there's actually two lines. To live would be an awfully big adventure, and then also to die would be an awfully big adventure, and so uh, that's that's the title. But we thought it would be good because it plays into what I'm saying later. But your mm-hmm. first story is specifically about. Fairies. Tinkerbell. Wait. Well, not Tinkerbell. But still. 
but fairies. Fairies, yes. Fairies and and um, well, not it's it's um. You can't talk about this story and not talk about fairies. It's the Cottingley fairies. Oh, um, right, the girls, right? The the girls that that in uh, the early part of the twentieth uh, century were claimed to have taken photographs of themselves in a dell at the bottom of the garden uh, with one And a dell? <laughs> She's everywhere. In now, if a any, if anyone dell. Is, is anyone is a good neighbor, it's a dell. Like the farmer in a dell? Yeah, farmer in the dell. Okay. Dell is, um, it's like a little area of wild, like, forest. Okay. English is just, it's like a, it's, dell is just a nice, it's like a clearing, I guess. The meadow. Uh, another word you'll want to know for this is beck, which beck. is a stream, but it's uh, it's what we would call a creek. It's usually deep, oh. uh, fairly deep. So it's it's not quite a river, um, but it's not quite it's a creek. It's a creek, yeah. So yeah. It's, they call it a beck. A beck. That, will, that word will come up a lot. So um, most Americans would call it a creek, but if you're in the South, you call it a creek. Creek, creek. Yeah, that's, but I guess creeks, I don't know that creeks, like, can be little, creeks can be deep, creeks can yeah. be wide, they can be narrow. I think Beck is a specific de- a designation that means it's, like, it's between a creek and a river. Like, it's, oh, it's, it's big enough creek. that you'd need a bridge over it, and deep oh. enough that you could fish in it if you wanted to, uh, but... Well, that's not a creek. Like, it's not easy, but it's not a, it's not a river, um, but I don't know why, I don't know why, I'd have to, like, it's, it's lost. It's a British creek. It's a British deep creek. <laughs> so all this takes place, and a lot of you may know the story, but you may not know all the details of the story, and you may not know about why the story got so much traction. Um, <laughs> traction. Traction. I, why did I have to say it like that? Why, Michael? Tell why, us why. why when, when did I become Snagglepuss? <laughs> <laughs> Exit stage that away. <laughs> <laughs> so all this uh, began in July of 1917 in Cottingley, which is a little village outside of Bradford in Yorkshire, which okay. is in England. <laughs> Yorkshire. So, so we're in Yorkshire, we go a little deeper in, and we're in Bradford a little deeper in, we're in Cottingley a little deeper, and we're in a beck. Um, in a beck and a Cottingley. So, <laughs> so one balmy July afternoon in 1917 in the village of Cottingley, Unflappable, no-nonsense Yorkshire man Arthur Wright tooled away in his darkroom developing photos taken by his 16-year-old daughter, uh, Elsie. Oh, I should add, uh, my primary source for this comes from, you guessed it, Colin Wilson, who wrote a really fascinating (laughs) chapter about this in one of his books uh, on fairies and elementals and goblins and things like that. He has a lot of very interesting things to say about it. He's like the Wikipedia of He's paranormal just, shit. Of, of, Colin Wilson, for me, is one of the most fascinating uh, encyclopedists yeah, that's uh, what I said. Of, of this kind of thing, but he... Uh, Literally what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> but he has a philosophical bent. Like, he, he, yeah. um, he always presents this stuff to support an argument he has for um, this kind of wider-ranging thing of, like, our place in the universe. It's really interesting stuff, and he's just, and he's a very uh, addictive writer like you, you very page turning stuff mm-hmm. uh so uh, uh so arthur was developing these photos that his daughter elsie had taken mm-hmm. and uh, elsie's cousin uh, francis griffiths uh who was with them staying with them on an extended visit from south africa had modeled for elsie earlier that morning in the garden now as the plates developed arthur uh, arthur began growing a little bit annoyed to see that the girls had gone to the back 
Oh, no. Beyond the garden's edge, where they had been repeatedly forbidden to go because the water was deep and, Drowning you and know, uh, the Wrights were afraid that Francis and, and their daughter Elsie would drown or something. Right. Um, now, his irritation slowly shaded into puzzlement as several white globs began to materialize around the face of 11-year-old Francis, who was posing Vogue-style beside a bush. As the globs came into sharper focus, Arthur saw what were plainly four tiny winged females frolicking in thin garments, one of them playing what looked to be a two-headed recorder. He asked his daughter what these figures were. She said nonchalantly, fairies. (laughs) (laughs) Fairies, Dad. God. This Sorry. was fairies, Dad. Go fairies. <laughs> uh, this was, you see, why the girls had repeatedly ignored the warnings to keep away from that area of the garden. Obviously, there uh, are fairies. I am going <laughs> now. Wright, who, being a very down-to-earth engineer, didn't press the girls for an explanation. Merely assumed this was a prank and harumphing. <laughs> uh, just left it at that. Uh, a month later, the girls again borrowed his camera, which was a, a what's called a midge quarter plate. It was an older camera, but it was portable. Well, among the first portable cameras that were like could be owned by like non. Was it like the accordion looking box thing? Not quite, but it was like one, it was like a generation after that. Okay. Camera became popular, so it was you know a child could work it pretty easily. Okay. Uh, but most people that, that had that hobby tended to be rich because you had to have all the expensive accoutrement to develop this stuff. Right. And uh, I dated someone for a while that used to do wet plate photography, which is similar to what this is, and it's a very involved process with a lot of chemicals, which is why Arthur is the one <laughs> developing it. these photographs and not the sixteen and eleven year old. Uh, so, uh, when he developed the, the next series of photos they had taken in the garden, Elsie, he found, was pictured plopped down on the grass, holding her hand out to a bearded cone-capped gnome. And you can look at all these pictures. They're online. Uh, they're still there. Um, we'll get to... We'll put some of them up on the Instagram. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, now, Arthur and his wife, Polly, searched the girls' bedrooms, expecting to find paper cutouts to explain the tiny figures, and were apparently a little flustered to discover there were none. Uh, the girls swore there had been no trickery. The fairies in the dell were real. Arthur vowed to take the camera away unless someone agreed to come clean, but this did not induce either girl to change their story. Uh, now, a few months later, in November, Frances enclosed one of these pictures with a letter she wrote to a friend back home in South Africa, casually remarking, quote, This is me with some fetties up in the back. <laughs> <laughs> now, two years later, in the summer of 1919, Polly Wright, which was Elsie's uh, mother, Uh, fascinated by all things occult, attended a meeting of the Theosophical Society in Bradford, uh, which was, again, uh, just up the road. It was, like, basically the village Cottingley is part of Bradford. Okay. Town. Town. Yes, township. Uh, The lecture that night just happened to concern the organization's stance on fairies, namely that they are ancient elemental spirits visible to people with second sight. Mrs. Wright, of course, couldn't resist mentioning her daughter's attempt to put one over on her and her husband, though it seems she was more inclined to take the photos at face value than he. Arthur made several prints at her behest to pass out among members at a later conference of the Society. Eventually, they made their way into the, uh, to the president of the London branch, Edward Gardner. Now, Gardner was something of an expert on fakes, uh, and not that impressed with the photos, when he later viewed the negatives, though, he flinched to find no evidence of double exposure. There might not be any chicory. <laughs> uh, this opinion was shared by his associate, uh, an expert on trick photography named Snelling, who viewed the negatives under the most powerful lens then available. Uh, these, both men proclaimed, were perfectly ordinary open-air photos, 
Polly and Arthur Wright were dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. Now, around the same time, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle oh, was writing... Oh, the an, Sir Arthur. The Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing an article about fairies for the Christmas edition of The Strand, which was the same uh, uh, publication that all the Sherlock Holmes stories were originally right. uh, uh, appeared in. So I said right like I knew that. <laughs> we all now know, though... Now he got, we all, the more you know. Now he got word of the Cottingley photos because he had ties to the, the Theosophical Society because he was fascinated by all that stuff too, though he was a, a little more skeptical. Um, he thought uh, a modern example of the so-called fairy faith might buffet interest in the piece he was writing and so the well-heeled creator of Sherlock Holmes reached out to Gardner and asked if he could see the photos. Now neither man could quite decide whether the whole thing was a hoax. There was no evidence, uh, direct evidence of fakery, they agreed, but the scenes captured looked a little staged all the same. The waterfall in one appeared to be painted, and the toadstools were just a little too perfect. They're just a little too toadstooly, A little too toadstooly, you know? Um, like, it looks like it was real, and I was like, I don't buy it. They probably agreed. Like, this this looks like it was done in a studio, and it looks like a kid's idea of what fairies, where fairies and gnomes would hang out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, these were serious men that were looking seriously into questions of fairies and elementals, <laughs> and so they're like, that's... <laughs> I just <laughs> love that you I said those are serious men looking fairies. into fairies. <laughs> I'm not, that's kind of the whole point of the story. Yeah. <laughs> these were serious grown-up men, skeptical, who were like, well, we have to look into these fairies. Yeah. Um, it's like the original brony. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I don't know. I don't know that I would go that far, but maybe. I don't know. Fairies are magic. Fairies I mean, are magic. that's well, literally true. They're magic. But as we will discover, <laughs> they're not always the kind of magic that friendship can be. Oh, um, that's a valid. Very valid. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so they were they were kind of stumped. And, and uh, Doyle and Gardner, you know, uh, both were like, I, maybe, yes, I don't know. Like, we got it. They, they were curious enough to look at it further and not just dismiss it out of hand. Um, when Gardner paid the family a visit and asked to be shown the Dell in person, it turned out to be exactly as pictured. Um, the waterfall he felt sure was a backdrop turned out to be real. The fairies, of course, weren't present, but every other detail checked out. Gardner conducted an experiment. Very much against Arthur Wright's wishes, he presented Elsie and Francis with a camera of their own and invited them to take more photos. The girls obliged. The plates were sealed to prevent any tampering, and when the negatives were returned to Gardner, the manufacturer confirmed to him that the seals had remained unbroken. One photo showed a fairy giving Elsie a flower. Very sweet. Elsie was so lucky. Uh, Another showed a fairy cutting a caper not inches away from Francis's face. Still another photo displayed a tiny makeshift clothesline on which hung what appeared to be a miniature bathing suit and a changing screen. That's my favorite thing ever. Elsie insisted she had no clue what these items were supposed to be. Gardner, with his knowledge of fairy lore, concluded that these creatures had drawn a kind of rejuvenating bath, often called a magnetic bath for reasons Mm. that are not readily apparent, Um, but something that fairies tend to do in gloomy weather. Uh, oh. Just to kind of, you know, I, I guess Calgon take me away. Right. Um, you take a, you get into the hot spot in the snow. That's <laughs> yeah, the best yeah, thing yeah, ever. That's right. And it ju- it did turn out that that August it ter- uh, had been rather wet and miserable. In England. In England. Yes. What a surprise. <laughs> Um, well, these fairies were prepared. So, again, <laughs> experts scratched their heads trying to debunk the photos. Doyle's article on fairies appeared in the Strand that Christmas, and the Cottingley legend went viral. 
Uh, a reporter with Westminster Gazette paid the family a visit and came away convinced these were honest, no-nonsense people with nothing to hide. Yet, while believers weren't exactly scarce, the public by and large laughed the whole thing off as a clever stunt and went about their business. So there, when people recount this story, we frequently think that, like, oh, we, everyone thought this was real. Everyone was taken in. Like, yeah. oh, God, people were so stupid back in, like, a century ago. And it's <laughs> not true. Like, they, they, would, they responded pretty much exactly as people would now if you see a YouTube video of some weird creature or ghost or something. Like, right. some people are, like, immediately, that's fucking real. And everyone else is like, fake. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> you know, total bullshit without really knowing one way or the other. So it, not much has changed except the medium. <laughs> right. yeah. Now, Arthur Wright uh, was ready to have done with all this. He, for one, couldn't believe a 16-year-old girl at the bottom of her class, no less, Aww. had fleeced the literary juggernaut behind the world's greatest detective, but there it was. Inclined to skepticism, though he may have been, Doyle couldn't shake the idea that fairies might actually exist. He wrote a celebrated clairvoyant named Geoffrey Hodson, who in turn joined the girls one afternoon on an excursion into the Dell and reported seeing the wee folk himself. Now, in 1965, Peter Chambers with the Daily Express discovered Elsie living in the north of England after spending most of her life abroad in India. He secured an interview and asked her point blank if the photos were fake. Elsie declined to give a straightforward answer. Smiling with a twinkle in her eye, the impish older woman said she preferred to leave it a mystery. When in <laughs> 1971 it turned out Francis, too, was still alive, BBC's Nationwide brought both women in for an interview, during which, much to the reporter's chagrin, they dodged any and all questions regarding <laughs> the photo's authenticity. A few years later, in 1975, however, Elsie did say in an interview with Walter Chapman of Women magazine that she and Elsie had indeed seen fairies in the Dell. The creatures, she maintained, were only visible to certain people at certain times. Oh. Astonishingly, she admitted the photos were meant to be a hoax, just not in the way most people suspected. Elsie had fallen in the stream that day, the Beck, back in July of 1917. The two girls concocted a tall tale to explain her drenched clothes and were admonished when caught in the lie. As revenge, they borrowed Arthur Wright's camera and set about capturing their fairy friends on film. He'd always told them such things didn't exist. They were determined to prove that adults lie every bit as much as they accuse children oh. of doing. That's why they took the photos. But, again, they're not saying they, that the fairies weren't real. They're just saying that, no, we wanted to show. Right. You know, like, oh, You lie, really? too. Yeah, you lie, too, you know. Uh, now, folklorist Joe Cooper spent a great deal of time with Elsie and Francis in 1975 while researching his book, The Case of the Cottingley Fairies, which is, to date, the most comprehensive book on the subject I've been able to find. Well, they were still alive, so they could talk mm -hmm, about it, too. Mm -hmm. He faithfully recorded uh, conversations in which Elsie, giving him a tour of the dell, says, Round about here the gnomes used to come. That's my old English woman voice. I love it. It's um, she described Don't taking the photos. Don't change it ever. <laughs> when the little people became clear, she said, Francis pressed the trigger button on the camera, and that was that. Um, <laughs> asked why she never tried to reach out and grab one, she replied, matter-of-factly, you couldn't. It's like grabbing for a ghost or something. <laughs> Um, <laughs> just, I really would make good. a wonderful little British old lady who's seen fairies. You um, would. You will. You I, I will. Maybe I was faith. Francis in another life. Um, Cooper asked the burning question, did you in any way fabricate these photographs? The answer, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> now, Elsie went on to share a number of odd occurrences that befell her as a child. At age four, she saw a woman sitting mutely at her bedside with a fox terrier. The dog sniffed out a penny Elsie kept under her pillow and ate it. 
When she shouted in protest, the rest of the family rushed upstairs to see what the commotion was about. Uh, the odd visitors had vanished, mm. as had the penny. Uh, one night, when she had come downstairs for a glass of water, unable to sleep, she discovered a strange man in shirt sleeves reading a newspaper by a raging fire. A woman in white, uh, a woman in a white apron, excuse oh. me, uh, <laughs> hashtag bitches in white aprons, in white aprons. <laughs> <laughs> bustled out of the kitchen at the same time, carrying a tray of rice pudding. Uh, Elsie inquired as to the whereabouts of her parents. The man replied they'd gone to see their neighbors, a couple called the Moffs. Uh, she asked him to let her out the front door as she wanted to go see them, and she was too small to reach the lock. He obliged. She discovered her parents next door with the moths indeed, and told them of the visitors back at the house. Alarmed, her parents rushed back and found it dark. No fire had been lit, but the front door was unlocked, and they yeah. had locked it before leaving. Her there by herself. Well, it was. this was 19... This would have been 1909... Right. In a village. Right. Okay, I get know, it, but so still. It's like, well, they locked it so that, you know, no one could right. get I in. I guess she couldn't reach it, so they thought yeah. she couldn't get out. Yeah. <laughs> different time back then. It was then. a different time. Um, no, so she had a, a various things that really suggest that, that uh, Elsie had been clairvoyant on her life, uh, all uh, her gotcha. life, which explains why she, she could saw see them these. fairies. Um, it doesn't explain why they were able to capture them on film if they did. Now, the case of the Cottingley fairies remains controversial to this day. For skeptics, the photos themselves constitute damning evidence. <laughs> and I have to say, the fairies look rather flat, and it has it, not to be an asshole, but they look kind of stupid. Um, the BBC demonstrated how easy it is to use cardboard props to create the same effect. They showed one of their reporters surrounded by such fairies in the studio. Looking at the original photos now, after a century, it's hard to imagine anyone believing these could be real, though not so hard, perhaps, to see why even later in life, Elsie and Francis would shy away from making their defenders look like idiots by admitting the photos to be outright fakes. Right. Francis told Joe Cooper she still saw fairies from time to time out of the corner of her eye. The view held by Gardner, Doyle, and the clairvoyant Joffrey Hodson at the time was that the children saw elementals, nature spirits associated with forests and bodies of water. The four basic classes of this creature are gnomes, thought to be spirits of the earth, sylphs, likewise the air, salamanders, fire, and nereids, water. I think only a lunatic fringe would ascribe to the belief like this in the 20th century or now, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> in his classic book, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, Arthur, or author, rather, W9 Evans Wentz, it's a very, very complicated name, W.Y. Evans Wentz, um, it's British, W.Y. Evans Wentz, Evans Wentz. <laughs> how you'd say it, writes, quote, we seem to have arrived at a point in our long investigations where we can postulate scientifically the existence of such invisible intelligences as gods, genie, daemons, all kinds of true fairies, and disembodied man. The general statement may be made that there are hundreds of carefully proven cases of phenomena or apparitions precisely like many of those which the Celtic people attribute to fairies. <laughs> Fairies. Fairies. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> he, of course, cited poltergeists, which he points out bear a strong resemblance to creatures ancient people called by all sorts of different names. He agrees with French investigator Camille Flammarion when suggesting the hijinks these noisome spirits get up to are identical to those of an ill-behaved child on a tear. Mm -hmm. Could the invisible beings with whom our ancestors thought themselves living side by side actually exist? Do they manifest themselves to people blessed with second sight? 
Evans Wentz remarks that the sort of people who claim to see fairies tend to be the same sort visited by ghosts, moreover that they exhibit no signs of mental illness or of being otherwise prone to hallucination. Researcher Andrew Lang writes that they are usually steady, unimaginative, unexcitable people with just one odd experience to their credit. Joe Cooper uh, cites the example of a soldier having a picnic with his girlfriend in Gibraltar one afternoon, during which a little man, roughly 18 inches tall, scurried out of the nearby brush, snatched away a sandwich right out of the guy's hand, and ran the fuck off. That's some moxie, and I like it. <laughs> Colin Wilson writes of a gentleman he met briefly in a pub in Edinburgh in 1978 who told him uh, about seeing a tiny, gaunt, little man standing outside the gate of a convent near where he'd come to pick up a friend. Something about the figure filled him with dread, and he sped off for fear of his life, not being able to say exactly why. Um, Colin goes on to remark how that seems to be the typical feature of people who encounter these creatures. They just kind of go, it's just weird. There's right. no it's real story there. It's just that I saw this little guy, or this little person, or this thing happened. Sometimes they'll just feel an invisible presence or get pushed or things. It's very similar to this. Um, in his book, Enchanted Britain, uh, writer Mark Alexander relates the story of his friend Pat Andrew, who at age six saw a pixie sitting on a gate, and it had long been a family story. Uh, years later, on a lark, Mark and Pat studied hypnotism and became oddly quite proficient. Mark decided to regress his friend back to the age of six to discover whether or not the classic pixie story from his childhood was actually true. He listened in awe as his six, as Pat's six years old six year old self had a relived the conversation he had had with whatever he saw. Oh, wow. uh, and to quote Mark, he says, "This left me in no doubt." He writes that. As a child, my friend had indeed seen something sitting on top of a gate which had replied to him as a pixie. Hmm. Esoteric archaeologist uh, Tom Lethbridge believed uh, there were various types of what he calls earth fields corresponding to the four elements, and that each field possesses its own kind of entity. To clairvoyance, these entities appear, he thought, shrouded in forms appropriate to the given culture. Ergo, uh, say, African people see tiny versions of themselves, Europeans see tiny Europeans, etc. He himself had a number of odd experiences redolent of the wee folk while visiting ancient churches in Scotland. The vast majority of these churches, he theorized, were erected on sites pagans associated with elementals. This, incidentally, is why old churches are so often named after St. Michael, who became the early Christian counterpart to the pagan god of light, Lug, also known as Lucifer. Ooh. I could go on and on about the wide range of theories concerning the nature and origin of elementals. Suffice it to say, most agree that throughout time, some human beings have been uniquely susceptible to the energies associated with certain places. Lethbridge calls the accumulation of negative energy around scenes of tragedy, for example, ghouls, and remained convinced all his life from experience that such energy can indeed take on a personality all its own, one often bent on causing harm to human beings. Thankfully, what Elsie and Francis encountered didn't seem to be in the least malicious, only playful and, bizarrely enough, pleased to be documented for posterity. Are the photographs real? In all likelihood, no. Much as I'm charmed by the idea, I defy anyone to look at them and persuade me they constitute absolute proof of the good neighbors. 
that's not to say the girls didn't experience something in the Dell that fine July. Perhaps, like Pat Andrew, the man Colin Wilson spoke to in Edinburgh, the soldier picnicking in Gibraltar, Tim Lethbridge, and countless others throughout history who encountered the Sith, as they're called in Scotland. Yes, that's <laughs> nice. where the word comes from. Uh, Elsie and Francis had a genuine experience of something otherworldly. Perhaps they felt compelled to fabricate evidence in support of something real that, to their frustration, simply refused to be pinned down. It is difficult to imagine so vast and indelible a part of British life as the fair folk being one continuous large-scale fraud and downright rude to think they represent merely a crude uh, explanation of natural phenomenon understood poorly by people in their intellectual infancy. I hate that explanation. Yeah. But the fairy faith, uh, you have to remember, existed happily alongside some of the greatest accomplishments in human history, not least of which was the forging of fucking empires. But alas, as Frances herself observed later in life, the fairies are terribly interested in what humans do, she said. <laughs> They're just awfully shy. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, that, great. That is basically the story of Cottingley. 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 The little village. And it's named for the village, which I'm not even sure is there anymore. It's now all just called Bradford. Oh. Yeah. Huh. But I know at the time that Colin Wilson was writing his uh, chapter about it in the book on poltergeists that I refer to so often... Um, it still existed. The Dell really? and all that place is still a place you could visit. So I, I don't know if it's... I can't find any more recent pictures of it. I looked, but... <laughs> so right and so wrong. There is, there is a, 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 a guy. Ah, I can't fucking think of his name. He wrote this really... It's thick reading. Uh, and it's only interesting if you're, if you're into like linguistics. But he talked about... He wrote a whole book about the Anglo-Saxon use of words denoting fairies and elf, elf, uh, alfar, the elfin people, mm -hmm. the wee folk. What? <laughs> and he, he finds that it, that word, um, that people th who did not conform to gender norms, uh, or, uh, who were maybe sexually oriented toward, you know, the same gender or both genders were often associated with, uh, the wee folk, with the fairy folk, with the, with the alfar. And not in a derogatory way. That was just like, oh, they're 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 they're, they're of another connected. world, which is kind of interesting. So he um, he doesn't say this outright, but the implication is that's where calling uh, queer people fairies Came may, in fact, maybe. come from, and mm. that it was started as a compliment. At least that's how I choose to believe it. I like it. Uh, that's not an invitation for people to just call you a fairy, though. Is no, it? it's not because they'll fuck them up if they don't ask my permission. But that's right. I'm just saying. That's exactly right. <laughs> I like to awesome. imagine myself being a fairy. I like it. I like, I like the idea that if you, if you give a little something to the fairies, then your garden is better. Yeah. You know, yeah. I like that. My grandmother used to do that. Yeah. And she had that. a really nice garden. Yeah. And, um. My and English it, it, tea roses are doing amazing. Yeah. Well, the, the belief, I think it was much more ambivalent. My grandmother, she believed that if, that if you didn't leave something out for the, the clearies, she called them the clearies, which yeah. is one of the classes. Um, <laughs> if you didn't leave shit out, they would fuck your garden up. Right. But if you, so, it's like it's like a it's like a fairy protection racket. That's right. <laughs> it's like they it's show the up like little fairy mom. Like ah, nice garden. Shame if something would happen to it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to start leaving shit up. And like, yeah. nice, nice, nice. I'm like like you're on the Give take. Me some honey. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Have you have you seen the the Cottingley fairy uh, photographs? Yes, I've yeah. seen them. I haven't seen them in a while. Yeah. But we'll look them up. And they're really, they're, they are adorable, but there's no way they're real. I want the one with the swimming 
suit on the, on yeah, the I'll show line. you. It's really, oh my it God. just looks like some, it looks like some towels put up and there's like a little thing that looks like a little bathing gown. I love it. Well, and it makes you wonder too, if they, they reenacted some of the things that they saw and then decided to elaborate. Well, and the fact that they, you know, for these, uh, they had to have so many cardboard cutouts uh, of these pictures and they were too skillful for these girls to have drawn themselves. Um, because they do look a little drawn to me. They, yeah. I, I can't tell if their photographs are just outright. One of them is definitely, the, the gnome is definitely something that an artist, if it is a cutout, it's something an artist rendered and yeah. not like a photo that they just cut out and decided it was a little person. But it's, you know, remember Arthur and Polly, their parents, or uh, uh, Elsie's parents, looked for them, looked for evidence of that and couldn't find it. And they would have had to have a lot of these lying around because there are multiple pictures and the same fairies are never pictured or the same poses are never recreated from okay. photo to photo. So there had to have been at least a dozen of yeah. these rather large for being cutouts. I mean, we're talking like one of them looked like to be a foot and a half tall. Right. So it's weird that they could have... I mean, Well, cool. if you look at the photographs, they're clearly, you know... Again, they're not... They're, they were not... There was no double exposure. Right. So... Or forced perspective, because that would be detectable by a, a photo expert, right? Well, forced um, perspective. No, it's just a straight-up picture. But, well, but a photo... Uh, but a photo expert... Also looks for that, too, okay. because forced perspective is another famous trickery thing. We're like, oh, it's really this. But yeah. you can see that... Um, it's what they do in Lord of the Rings. That's true. Uh, um, but it's it's just interesting that, you know, whatever they did, they yeah. were the girls were awfully clever. And they did they did say uh, repeatedly that Dad had nothing to do with it. Dad yeah. just developed the pictures we took, but, like, because they... Like, whenever people would accuse Arthur Wright of being in on it, they would adamantly defended like you know, he had no clue he had didn't yeah. he was not it was not fake and he definitely did not have that. anything to do they're like did you fake it and they'd be like well, well you know you know what i'd like i'd like to believe that the girls thought their dad was faking the pictures so they never wanted anybody to think ill of him so they were taking the heat but he thought they and it was all the, the massive prank being played on them by the fairies. By the fairies. Who were like, you, you can take pictures of us, but it's going to look fake. Right. Or... It's something a fairy would totally do. Or a poltergeist would do. Well, that's what that Lethbridge guy was like. Poltergeist and fairies. Same, same being. Same, same creature. Kind of thing. Same, same creature. Same... Elementals. They're original. Elementals. Yeah, yeah. Elementals. Hmm. They're the freaky ones. Wow. Thank you, Michael. Oh, fascinating. But a cute little story. I thought we do cute. We do a lot of dark stuff on this show, which is great. But I like to be kind of cute and airy sometimes. Well, to and to do my little old British woman voice. I know, I'm glad you did. I think we're all <laughs> glad that you did. Uh, I feel better. To balance that out. Something dark. Oh, real dark. Oh, yes, thank you. I need a palate cleanser. Yeah. So, <laughs> what this is, first let me say. Uh, it's dark. Uh, there's no way that I have the time to say everything that's happened in this place. or. Oh. All of the things, but so this is just like a smattering. It's a, a long smattering, a but it's just a smattering. A flight, if you will. A flight, a taster. We've done this before. <laughs> a charcuterie. <laughs> Board of uh, tragedy. Yes. So this is for our Australia listeners. Mm. Port Arthur in Tasmania. Yes. Was, okay. We'll you give, don't know a lot everyone, about this one. Uh, I don't, but I just. I want to give our listeners a moment to get the idea of the Tasmanian devil out of their minds because I know they're all thinking it. I mean, we're just hardwired for that. There's nothing now. we can do Thank about it. Thank you, Looney Tunes. That's right. <laughs> uh, Port Arthur is a small town and former convict settlement on the Tasman Peninsula in Tasmania, Australia. Port Arthur is one of Australia's most significant heritage areas and an open air museum. 
It was a penal colony. <laughs> Gird thy loins, kids. <laughs> We're going to hear penal a lot. So, I like this story already. I know. Everybody needs to get emotionally ready for it because where there's a penal, there's a way. Um, okay. <laughs> According to legend, the multitude of ghosts and spirits who call Port Arthur home are victims of the brutal conditions of the prison itself. Mm. People have reported that certain prison cells have held their former occupants' depressed spirits in them, have heard the moans of the child prisoners at one of the facilities, and experienced mysterious disturbances at the officers' households. It's said to be one of the most haunted locations in Australia as well as actually, I think it's the most haunted location in Australia, as well as one of the most haunted former prisons in the world. Ooh. And prisons tend to be haunted as fuck. Yes. There have been reports of the paranormal there for 100 years now. For a, for a little bit of a better perspective, there are currently over 1,600 documented hauntings so far at Whoa. Port Arthur. And those are just documented hauntings? Documented. 1,600. And this is why I can't get through them all. <laughs> There's no way. Let's, okay, history. Are you ready? So ready. All right. I mean, yes, I'm so ready. That's not, wait. Can you do that Australian? No, I can't. I can't, no, no, I can't get the no it's right. So, it's such a beautiful no, sound. No, 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 no. I don't know how to no. do it. I, can, I, can, I think the, the no, no is the only thing no. I can do. I don't know. No. no. No, it still sounds British to me. I can't. It's all in the no, and I can't it, do it. No and no's and all that stuff. I can't I, do it. When I went to Brisbane, when Brent and I went to Brisbane last year, it was my first time ever in, in Australia, and everyone there was super cool. It's awesome. The accent I'm in love with. It's but so good. It sounds British until they get to certain vowels. And yeah. you're like, oh, that's right. I, and now in Australia. is one of them. So. Anyway. It's also very uh, Canadian in the qu- in the ending on an upswing. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Uh, in 1776. <laughs> we just reduced the entire people to their accent. To one We accent. didn't. We just discussed an accent. We didn't say everybody from Australia is their accent. Well, no, but I mean, like, but there's also, like, so many different accents there in Australia. Are. There are. That's true. It's a big place. That's true. Very true. It's very big. Very big. Okay, 1776. Great Britain had kind of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> King George was mad. He was mad. Mad! mad I tell He'd you. throw a champagne glass against the fireplace. He was mad! They're calling themselves the United States now, so are they? Goodness me. <laughs> and, and we're done. Okay, the Americas had figuratively flipped them a giant middle finger and told them to go fuck themselves. Why was this a Hamilton. problem? Excluding all of them sweet, sweet taxes. So other than the taxes, why was this a problem? Was it a problem because of all the, the resources they, were hope, they hoped would come from the wildernesses of the Americas? Nope. Well, no? our forefathers' forefathers had been sending con- convicted criminals, as well as anyone else they just didn't want around anymore, to the Americas, since oh. it could, pretty much. <laughs> That's where they would send people who were being punished for crimes. They'd send them to America. Huh. We weren't just the colonies. We were the penal colonies. <laughs> 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 now that they completely and utterly lost the Americas... And soon, their ownership of adding the letter U to words that didn't need them. They had to find a new... <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Favorite. I know. I'm making all of the, our British listeners mad. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. Um, they had to find a new penal outlet. <laughs> yeah. uh, you weren't even trying not to make that one dirty. I know. It sounds like either like the best or the worst outlet mall ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
it depends on the quality of the penal The, the penal outlets. <laughs> How big is that discount? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're sure to find a treasure every time you shop. <laughs> <laughs> a treasure bag at the very least. Um, <laughs> where did they send then? Uh, get it over. Yeah, it's all right. Let it out. I'll have a drink while you let the devil out. <laughs> Oh, God, okay. this is too good. I'm not going to be able to... The story is supposed to be serious and dark. It is serious. This is serious. <laughs> I'm making a dick joke out of everything. I can't... Why do we call it? Why... It makes no sense, English. I know. Why is penis and penal... It's not our fault. <sighs> at least there's not a U in it for no fucking reason. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, of course, they sent their new masses of unwanted and criminal to... <laughs> Australia! <laughs> Yay! Okay, if we've learned anything... Back in Reginald, you're going on a trip. That's right. Woohoo! Um, if we've learned anything about Australia's history in the United States classrooms, it's that Australia was founded by the best of the worst Englishmen. We're n I'm not joking either. Like, if you are listening not from the United States, pretty much all we know is, that's not a knife, this is, that's a knife, that's what it is, right? That's not a knife, that's a knife, yeah. Crocodile, hunter. Crocodile, Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile Dundee. These are uh, Crocodile yeah. Hunter, Steve Crocodile Irwin. Dundee. Yeah, Crocodile Dundee, Crocodile and Hunter. And the Tasmanian and Devil. People. And the Tasmanian Devil. And that's what we know. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. That's all, it is all we know. It's because blame America. That's right. Blame America. Anywho, before long, boatloads of people were shipped down under to live with the best of the worst bugs, spiders, snakes, and other terrifying animals. Everything in Australia yeah. wants to kill humans. Yeah. Everything. Everything. Every species of insect, plant, the, the worst. dirt. Wants to kill you. The best of the worst. Best of the worst. Um, so anyway, that's where Veritable all the... rogues gallery. That's right. lethality. That's where all the Brits sent them then. And <laughs> so now we have Tasmania. For those who don't know, like myself before I looked this up, Tasmania is an island state of Australia. I knew it was an island, but I didn't know where. Okay. So, and no, Aussies, we didn't know that either. Okay. Sorry, Aussies. Uh, uh, Tasmania is south of the Australian mainland, about 150 miles, 240 kilometers, or kilometers, um, however you fucking want to say it, I don't give a shit, <laughs> and includes a bunch of little surrounding islands. It's about as down under, cubits. yeah, right, it's about as down under as you can get. The island was permanently settled by Europeans in 1803 as a penal settlement. <laughs> The British Empire actually chose the island because they wanted to prevent claims to the land by the first French Empire during the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. They're like, oh, look, our criminals peed on it first. <laughs> Do you have a flag? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they really only had one obstacle to the settlement, which was, as is with all colonization stories, the indigenous people who, you know, already lived there. Oh, yeah, them. Yeah. The island Funny is, how they're always an afterthought. I know. The <sighs> island is believed to have been occupied by indigenous peoples for 30,000 years before British colonization. The aboriginal population is estimated to have been between 3,000 and 7,000 at the time of colonization, but was almost wiped out within 30 years by a combination of violent guerrilla conflict with settlers known as the Black War, intertribal conflict, and from the late 1820s, the spread of infectious diseases of which they had no immunity. Fucking white people. Ugh, Brits. Yep, yep just, just all of the colonizationers. 
Colonizers, that sounds better. Colonizers. Yeah. Port Arthur was established in 1830 as a timber station, but it ended up being known as a penal colony. Um, Port Arthur is, and I don't want to like, just like blaze over the Aboriginal population being wiped out. It's awful. And I just felt that we had to mention it as well because who knows what was attached to the land before and then with all of the deaths mm-hmm. and all of that, that, how that could have affected this land as well. But anyway, yeah, no shit. Port Arthur was established in 1830 as a timber station, but it ended up being known as the penal colony. I said that already, but I just wanted to say penal colony again. It does just... <sighs> it's, it rolls it's right off words. the tongue, you it's know like, what I'm saying? It's like, it's like lighting incense. Just, <laughs> <sighs> Port Arthur is located on the Tasman Peninsula about 60 miles, or 97 kilometers, from the capital of Tasmania, Hobart, which is a tiny town in Oklahoma that many members of my personal family owned thanks to the land run, which is a totally different colonization. (laughs) Yay, white people. For a brief moment, I was like, wait, the capital of Tasmania is in Oklahoma? I know, Hobart. (laughs) And Hobart's like a small town in Oklahoma, too. It's not a big one, but the capital of Tasmania is Hobart. 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 Yeah, they probably don't pronounce the R as much as we do. Anyway, uh, from 1833 until 1853, Port Arthur was the destination for the hardest of convicted British criminals. They were usually... Oh, that's what they call it, penal colony. Penals. Uh, They were usually (laughs) secondary offenders, so people who'd been shipped to Australia and continued to break the law... The island penal colony also included rebellious personalities from other convict stations. Many times, the convicts' families would be sent to the colony to live as well. Because of this, Port Arthur had some of the strictest security measures of the British penal system. <laughs> the prison was completed in the 18- good to have a system. That's right. It was completed in the 1850s for the layout. Imagine a big cross. The center of the cross, where the crossing part happens, was where the surveillance core of the prison was located, as well as the chapel. The prisoner wings were the rest of the cross. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. There were exercise yards at each corner. The center hub would allow all wings to be seen from one spot. The design was considered a separate prison system, also known as a model prison, and was vastly different than most prisons at the time. Along with a different layout came a different type of punishment. Instead of simply physical punishment for the prisoners... There was a shift towards psychological punishment uh, as well. As See, if it weren't bad enough. I told you it'd get dark. It's real dark now. Welcome to it. <laughs> what kind of psychological punishment, dare you ask? Well, uh, what kind of psychological punishment, I dare ask? Thank you. For example, there was the silent system. Basically, they put hoods on the prisoners and made them stay silent. Oh. Here, sit in the dark and shut the fuck up. Don't say anything or you're going to get physically hit, right? The Jesus. idea, yeah. The idea was that the person would be forced to quietly reflect upon their actions. But instead, <laughs> it's like the worst version of quiet time. I know. And because there was no light and sound, many of those prisoners went mad. Went mad. If they had champagne glasses, they would have thrown them against the fireplace. <laughs> and those, so then you you have the ones that it, you know, drove it drove them nuts mm. um, to be as completely insensitive about it as possible. <laughs> then you have people who are already suffering with mental issues. It made it worse. Uh, 
Wait, you mean treating people with so, with so indignantly doesn't help them? It doesn't. Doesn't reform criminals or Seems help people not. with mental illness? Yeah, it does. It doesn't. Seem, I know. So I'm, I'm rather shocked, and, and and this is no shit. I'm just rather shocked that it took us so long to figure that out. I know. I know. Well, what was convenient about all of this is that the insi- the asylum was like right next door, so it was fine, you guys. They had, yeah. Yay! It worked so well. Like Alcatraz, much later in the United States, Port Arthur was marketed as an inescapable prison. Of course, prisoners still tried to escape, and three successfully did so. One of the weirdest attempts, there was one guy who escaped twice, and there's a book about it, about his escapes, because he did it twice. Um, (laughs) But my favorite one was this guy whose name was George Billy Hunt. He disguised himself as a kangaroo using a, a kangaroo hide. And so he covered himself and he went hopping away to, to get away. But conditions on Tasmania were terrible. Not just for the prisoners. It was just like just for the guards as well. And... It was, they just didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough stuff. Oh, oh God. So the guards were half starved. They see a kangaroo. They're like, dinner. So they got ready to start shooting at him. And he realized what was going on, and so he gave himself up and ended up getting, like, 150 lashes, I think. In my mind, they catch the kangaroo, open it up, and he plays it off. And be like, oh, thank you, you saved my life. This fucking kangaroo ate it me. Ate and- me. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. No, that's not what that's, Wow, talk about it. He's like, I've got a great idea. It's yeah. Like, that's like... <laughs> so, juvenile offenders were also sent there. So, you have kids sent to Australia. It was actually one of the other islands. They were sent there and housed in a separate prison away from the adult population. Mm -hmm. Some of the boys were as young as nine. What the fuck can you do by age nine that makes them go, yeah, there's there's no hope for you. We got to pack you off to fucking Tasmania. You're homeless. You're homeless and you steal food. Stuff like that. They could spend money to put you on a ship. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. put you on that journey, and oh, God right. Damn. Well, and two, there's the the people, and this wasn't this situation, but the people whose kids were taken and to start families in Australia to help populate mm-hmm. it more. Mm. That whole thing, that's a whole other ball of wax. But um, the boys may have been separated from the big bad men, but they still had the same hard labor and psychological punishments. Damn. But at least they they were taught a trade and had some schooling. So totally different. Uh, <laughs> so when they got out, they could just put it all behind them and That's have right. no PTSD. If they got out. If they got out. Yeah. Because we see that dressing up like a kangaroo doesn't They're not shipping them back. Work. No. Yeah. Uh, the shipping oh. of convicts to Port Arthur, their housing, and the slave labor they were forced to do was generally as harsh, if not worse, than other prisons in the, co- in the country. Despite that, though, Port Arthur was considered the model for the penal reform movement. Hey, penal reform. <laughs> penal form what <laughs> however some critics suggest that the harsh conditions compounded with the psychological punishment as well as having no hope for escape made it one of the worst prisons at the time mm. there were food shortages like i said there was torture there are even stories about prisoners killing people just to escape the desolation of life at the camp because the punishment for murder was death like period there was yeah it was yep. like suicide by murder they murder someone so they'd know they would be put to death and they wouldn't have to live there anymore. Wow. Yeah, it was bad. Damn. Anyone who died inside the penal camps were sent to a nearby island called uh, what was Opossum Island. Opossum 
a possum island, but we would call it possum island oh, in Texas. Um, but it became known as the Isle of the Dead. Of the 1,646 graves recorded to exist there, only 180 are marked, and those are of prison staff and military personnel. Ah, they're just playing. <laughs> <laughs> the prison closed in 1877. A town grew up around the old prison, and currently there are between two and 300 people living in Port Arthur. Many of the original structures either collapsed or were taken down, but in 1979, funding was received to preserve the site as a tourist destination due to its historical significance. Several sandstone, sandstone, I can say it, several sandstone structures. Very good. Thank you. Built by conflicts were cleared of overgrowth and restored to a condition similar to their appearance in the 19th century. Mm. Buildings include the model prison, the guard tower, the church that was uh, built by the convicts, and the remnants of the main penitentiary. 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 Uh, The buildings are surrounded by a lush green parkland. The mass graves on the Isle of the Dead also attract tourists. The air about the small bush-covered island is described as possessing melancholic and tranquil qualities by visitors. Point pure, P-U-E-R, pure. I want to say it different, but. Pure. 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 Point pure. Point penis. Um, point, point penal. Across the harbor <laughs> from the main settlement where the first boys' reformatory was located. Mm-hmm is also visitable. After entering the historic site, visitors can either survey the site for themselves or participate in guided tours, a harbor cruise, tours to the Isle of the Dead, and Point Pooh, and evening historic (laughs) ghost tours. Also, a museum there contains written records, tools, clothing, and other curiosities from convict times, a convict gallery with displays of the various trades and work undertaken by convicts, and a research room where visitors can check up on any convict ancestors. I think that's really cool. Visitor facilities include two cafes, a bistro that operates each evening, a gift shop, and other facilities. They have touristed the fuck out of this place. Can you imagine how, like, those that, like, 100, 200 years ago were like, what, this place becomes what? (laughs) Right, it does. It does what? There's a, what's a gift shop? Right, there are gifts about the convicts that are... What's a bistro? (laughs) Bistro. Why are people enjoying themselves where I was, like, experienced, like, Torture. hell on earth? Yeah. To this day, Port Arthur is one of Australia's best-known historical sites, receiving over 250,000 visitors each year. Damn. It's a big deal. Also, there's the massacre. And I don't go into this too much because I feel like, especially uh, recently, it's just a lot. And so I don't want to sit on this too much, but mm-hmm. on April 28th, 1996, the Port oh, Arthur historic yeah. site was the location of the worst mass shooting mm-hmm. in Australia's history. The perpetrator murdered 35 people and wounded 23 more before being captured by the special operations group. Oh. The killing spree led to a national restriction on high capacity semi shotguns and rifles. The perpetrator, a 20 year old, 28-year-old piece of shit that I am not going to say his name. Good for you. Thank you. Was subsequently convicted and is currently serving 35 life sentences plus 1,035 years without parole in the psychiatric wing of Risdon Prison in Hobart, Tasmania. I like the poetic justice of 35 life sentences. Yeah. Good. 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 Fuck that piece of shit. He's never getting out. But that also happened on Port Arthur. So, yeah, on top of the prison, now there's this massacre. And, um, you know, they don't have uh, 
high-gauge automatic weapons anymore, so they haven't had any of those other shootings, which is interesting to note. for no Purely coincidental, I'm sure. Yeah. All right, moving on. The haunting. <laughs> yes. One common complaint is that people feel they are being followed. Many report the hair on the back of their necks stand up. Others report hearing footsteps behind them when no one was there. Pretty common in very haunted places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People that are sensitive to activity often report they felt nauseated as they toured the site, which would almost certainly happen to me. I get nauseated really yeah, quickly yeah. in spaces like that. Many visitors have picked up strange forms in their photographs. One person took two pictures 10 seconds apart. The first photo, photo showed a window with a curtain across it. The second photo showed this curtain slightly drawn back with the face of a young girl peering out. When they zoomed in on this picture, they clearly saw her features. Yeah. A lot of people capture a lot of things in pictures from Port Arthur. And I'll put some of them up, but definitely check it out because there's some really creepy shit out there. Yeah. Yeah. The parsonage. The parsonage. We're going to get specific now. The Parsonage House is known to be in the top five haunted houses in Australia, so it's obviously one of the primary locations for paranormal activity at Port Arthur. It's not a convict prison, as you might expect, but a cute pumpkin cottage that belonged to the Reverend. His death wasn't (laughs) so traumatic that he'd have caused a haunt, but ever since his death in the house, his ghost has been spotted. Visitors, when shown old photos of him, always state that he was the ghost they saw. So they'll see a ghost, and they'll be like, here are some pictures, and they'll be like, that was him. I wonder why he stuck around. I don't know. Well, this could be why. After his death, his wife and ten children were abandoned by the church and the government, so Uh their lives became tumultuous and very full of struggle. (sighs) Many wonder if the rest of his family haunts the parsonage as well. Mm. But that could be why, as maybe he wanted to make sure they were taken care of, and they were not. Mm. No one knows why, but the figure of a man has been seen outside the window with his arm raised in a stabbing strike motion, and a builder involved in the restoration awoke one evening to a heavy weight on his chest and the sensation of hands gripping his throat to strangle him. His two colleagues heard a commotion and walked in to see their friend in a convulsive state, holding his neck and rocking back and forth. They used all their strength to try and drag him out of the house, but could not move him until the ghost led up. One tour group reported an encounter with a ghost. When one of their members had to return to the entrance to use the public restroom, he was told they could not wait for him, so he best try and catch up. Later, as the group approached the old prison, they spotted a figure behind them, which they felt must be their straggler. But when they spoke to him, he ducked behind a tree. The tour guide, then thinking it might be another guide playing a trick, tried to talk to him on her walkie-talkie, but when no one responded, she headed towards the figure but it just disappeared. When this group returned to the entrance, they spotted the man who had left the group in a tourist cafe drinking coffee. They questioned him, but he didn't know what they were talking about. After using the restroom, he had decided to remain at the entrance. Huh. Weird. I know. Some of the other spirits said to dwell there might be those of the tormented convicts brought to Port Arthur. Those who work in and around the parsonage believe it's the most haunted building on the island. According to witnesses, unexplainable lights flicker, Doors shut mysteriously, and ghostly footsteps echo the halls. Visitors often smell a rotten odor in the house, hear moaning and other strange noises, and witness lights flashing in the building. The Lady Blue. We have another blue lady? Yes. She is a young woman, possibly a teenager, who appears around the accountant's house and the parsonage. 
One visitor was outside the parsonage when her daughter suddenly ran with her arms open to an embrace to embrace an invisible figure. When asked about it, the young girl said there was a nice lady who lived here and wanted to play. Oh, I know. It's sweetly terrifying. Or kill children. <laughs> right. Well, she's known as the Lady Blue, and many people believe she was the wife of an accountant who died during childbirth. She is often heard weeping, and others have seen her apparition as well. Some of those reports include, so this is reports directly from mm. their report logs. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I, saw the, I saw the figure of a lady in a crinoline dress and a bonnet with an arm outstretched, with arms outstretched. The woman had a pale dress from waist to ground. That was the second one, the third one. Figure of a youngish woman wearing a long blue-gray dress looking out the back door of a building. Hmm. Three different accounts. Weird. Same person, yeah. Weird. Seems There's also the nanny chair. The nanny chair? Mm -hmm. It's the first house ever built. Well, the first house ever built in Port Arthur was the Commandant's house. It was built for colony leader for the colony leader in 1833 and had an astonishing view of the entire village. Mm. Today, one of the rocking chairs inside the house is believed to hold a long dead spirit. Those who sit in it are hit with the presence of an unnatural aura, and many who attempt to simply photograph it find their equipment mysteriously and temporarily defective. Ooh. Another spirit seen in the commandant's house is that of a little girl who is believed to have died when she fell down the stairs. Many people have seen this girl, and those reports include, one, I felt a little girl laying at the bottom of the stairs. Mm -hmm. She was laying in a pool of blood. Her right arm is broken. She is really scared. Mm -hmm. I know. The second one, I could hear the little girl as I walked up the path. Third, her arm is twisted up under her. I felt like my arm was hers. Mm -hmm. I know. That's sad. Oh, poor baby. I know. Then, there are the more of the children. Ugh. One of the most chilling stories that most people tell about Port Arthur involves the ghosts of children seen and heard nearly everywhere. Oh. These ghostly children have been photographed in various windows, like the, the girl. Mm -hmm. Their laughter and their cries have been heard on the streets, and they've been heard running up and down various stairwells among the houses. So with that, you think convicts were sent and their families were sent too so they were living mm. in the city and that includes kids and mm -hmm. you know the wives and the kids yeah but worst of all are the sounds of painful cries coming from mm. point pure oh. the prison built specifically for boys at one point it held 3,000 young prisoners explorers who visit at night find the halls filled with the sounds of dread it's said that the cries of one boy are clearly heard he laments remorsefully as he's led to his own execution. Oh, I know. Why I would you him. execute a kid? Because it's the mid it's... to late 1800s. And Ugh. The church at Port Arthur has a haunted history as well. The building caught fire in 1884, and ever since then, visitors and residents have noticed strange activity, especially in the bell tower. The bell rings randomly, even though a ringer is notably absent. Earlier in the 19th century, when the church was being constructed, it is said that two convict workers got into a fight, and one of the men struck the other with a pickaxe. Caretakers of the church and towers say that at one point after the man's death, ivy began growing on the church wall everywhere except the exact spot where the man's blood soaked the ground. The dissection room! Oh, yay! We know that's haunted. Those Listen are great it. places. Uh-huh. 
in the prison's basement. This, I mean. Yep, hashtag fuck a basement. Dissection room in a basement. Hashtag fuck a dissection room. In a basement. In a basement. Yeah. Oh. So in the basement lies the senior surgeon's dissection room, where hundreds of former inmates were opened up and examined. In here, the cold stone walls exude the feeling that they're closing in on its visitors. Some have even said that they saw faces bleed through the walls and peer at them from the corner of their eyes, only to disappear moments later. Corner of their eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Only to disappear moments later. Oh. An old sheep skull lying on the stone slab is said to sometimes move on its own. And one tour guide often tells about the time that a grizzled World War II vet entered one of the adjoining rooms and fell unconscious from fear. Oh, goddamn. Yeah. Then we have the Opossum Island, otherwise known as the Isle of the Dead. Again, who 16, aren't playing dead. Who aren't playing, they're literally dead. Over 1,600 prisons are buried there, most without any marker or tombstone. Typically, one prisoner was relegated to being the gravedigger, and they alone were housed on the island, along with the bodies only returning to the mainland every weekend, typically for church service. Oh, that's a horrible job. What would you do? Like, I would rather have latrine duty. I don't know, because if you think about it and you're not freaked out by it, you I'm thinking this... about it, and I'm freaked out by it. Well, but you have the whole island to yourself all week. With a bunch of dead people on it. Yeah, but, I mean, they're dead. What are they going to do? I mean, the, whole, you, the but... whole point of this podcast is that that's not the end of the story. Well, that's true. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, if you're not thinking I mean, about I guess, it like that. I mean, I guess it's, it's a bit much to say I'd rather have latrine duty, but that's a spooky fucking job. I know. I wonder, though, at the time, was it... Like something people wanted or didn't want. Probably. Some people probably wanted it just yeah. to get the fuck out of, yeah. you know, having to be in a fucking cell with eight rotated. other people or whatever, you know. Yeah, maybe it rotated too. Mm. So anyway, uh, one of the more infamous grave diggers was a huge ex-convict named Mark Jeffrey. He was a rough and tumble Irishman who was serving time for manslaughter. One day, officers found that he had lit a signal flare on the island and they went to investigate. They found the giant man curled up into a quivering ball of fear. He said that the previous night his hut shook violently and a red glow emanated from within. He said that he was visited by his satanic majesty and his eyes glowed red with heat as the stench of sulfur engulfed him in smoke. God, I love the Irish. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, so... And it makes you wonder, too, with the mental illness being as prevalent as it is, or maybe he was just tired of being on the island, but still creepy. Oof. Creepy. Civil officers He's wrote, like, hell can't be worse than here, so right. I might as well make a pact with the devil. <laughs> Get me off this island. Civil officers wrote, Port Arthur is naturally separated into specific communities. The senior officers' living quarters were built away from the main prisoner facility. This area is called the Civil Officers Row, and many ghosts occupy the neighborhood. In 1848, the junior medical officer's home was built as a means to tend to any wounded prisoners or officers. It is here that many report all manner of strange spiritual disturbances. Some have seen ghostly children running around playing, while others have seen a melancholy old woman searching for the spirit of her stillborn child. Mm. Legend has it that she was buried separate from her baby because the child was never baptized. 
And so the baby was buried under unconsecrated land. Oh. So she can't find it. That's mean. I know. Prison and medical office. Activity commonly takes place in the medical office as well. There are dozens of reports of rattling windows, moving furniture, and disembodied footsteps. Strange lights are frequently seen in the cells where prisoners were kept in dark silence. In some of the cells where prisoners were murdered or committed suicide, people feel an intense wave of depression and anxiety. Mm. Now we have a couple of specifics. William Carter. On April 20th, 1867, one of the prisoners, William Carter, committed suicide in his own cell. He fashioned a makeshift noose with his own hammock and hanged himself. No one knew the reason why, but, you know... We I mean, we guess. could surmise. Yeah, exactly. Things weren't going too well. He didn't like it. <laughs> People who visited Carter's cell have noticed that sense of of oppression and depression while they're inside. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, specifically him. Then there's Private Robert Young. In 1840, 20-year-old Private Robert Young was providing a nighttime escort for a doctor to see a young patient at Point Pure. After the, after the good doctor disembarked from the boat, Young decided to keep guard in the boat. It turned out to be a terrible idea. Ooh. His footing slip, slipped and he fell into the dark water below. Oh. Two convicts attempted to save him, but ultimately were unsuccessful in the rescue. His ghost haunts the area around the jetty. For people who don't know what a jetty means, it's a landing or a short pier, basically a dock. Yeah. One guest encountered Young's ghost while staying at the jetty cottage. She woke one night and saw a specter in the room. It had straight black hair and a ruffled white shirt. Other guests reported the same exact specter in various locations, on the jetty looking out over the water or on the front stoop looking sullen. Again, there's so much information to Port Arthur that there's not even close. I can't even go... Wait, what, is he 1600 reporting cases? Oh, 1,600. Over. And some uh, some articles would say 2,000. So... But still, I mean, once you get into those numbers, you're like, okay, clearly... Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not time to go over all of it, but maybe in the future we'll be able to break it down and go through some things yeah. more specifically. You always revisit. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, and, and spend more time at it. But... What a uh, miserable fucking place that scene. I know. It definitely was. And I can only imagine what that energy is like. Oh, so much it makes loss. you wonder how a town like grew up around there that's well, successful and only gorgeous now and 200 all, 300 I mean, people there yeah but still it's like fuck yeah. who goes like who goes that's where i want to build right you know that's you've got to be a special kind of madman to want to be like that i want to go build a not city not that if you're listening we think that you're a special kind of madman if you live at port arthur no i mean the sort of person whose idea it is to like build a town there oh. in the first place not to live there i mean it's well, a nice once it's a nice town it's a nice started, town but like when it's like that place with that history who's yeah. who's the real estate developer that goes in and be like that's where we want to build where Anyone. a bunch of yeah I they mean, build over graves here so. i know but, but it's, that's it's just it gives what me happened the fucking is creeps. It, once it was abandoned it was it just kind of started to go into ruin and so people were like you know they wanted to forget that it had that history yeah so then they tore things down and they were selling property to kind of create a different community mm. and then that's when the government came in and we're like hold up we want to make this we need to preserve the history to you know memorialize the people that oof yeah oh it's just man it's just i'm fascinated by that and it's a bummer too but man oof yeah and 
since it's so public, if anybody listening has ever gone and had yeah, it, let us please know, let us know what happened. Odds are you have had an experience. I know. There's, it's so... Been to but they do the, the ghost tours and yeah. all of that stuff. But yeah, Ooh. it's just, there's, I, can't, I can only imagine what that energy is like. I know. Yeah. You would vomit. Yeah, for sure. Oh. For sure. Well, thank you. No problem. I hope you enjoy it. I hope everybody enjoyed it. <laughs> and I hope everyone enjoy the fairy story. Yeah. I was looking and it was just like so much information. I was like, this is going to be so easy. And then it was like, no, it's not. What no, do I choose then you to have say? To, like, you know, I have to like, uh, I have to edit it, it down. down. Yeah. yeah. Whew. Yeah. So, we should revisit it Port Arthur. too. Port Arthur, Tasmania. The, the penal colony. Eh, eh, penal eh, colony. Eh, eh, so. Yeah. There we go. Thanks for listening. Everybody. Yeah, thanks. That's our show. For yeah. Today. Yeah. Uh, check out our website <laughs> go to the website you can submit your own personal story for That's consideration right. to be read as cool either a cold open uh, or we may read it on uh, a ghosticles episode yep and it's very easy to submit it, it's super it, it's easy right there in, in plain you'll see it it's fine um you can buy you can go to the store stuff buy shirts. buy shirts you can listen to the podcast if you're having yes. issues on any of the apps true true you can see other things <laughs> you can follow us on twitter yes ghoul intent you can follow yeah, us ghoul on intent. instagram ghoul intentions mm -hmm, facebook mm -hmm. ghoul intentions page mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, all of those mm -hmm. things and auditings instagram will do pictures please leave um, us reviews if you positive. like what you hear big bad yummy if you don't like what you hear then stay away reviews, yeah uh, <laughs> but yeah yeah. And, and if you buy if you buy a shirt, please take a picture of yourself in it and yeah. uh, tag we us. Like them. And we're we looking love... at doing some more. Yeah. So those should be coming. Yeah. Coming some more stuff soon. coming down the wire. We need That's to right. brainstorm on more merch ideas. That's right. So yeah. All right, you ready for your? Yes. What is your my quote? what is my quote? I am a nice shark, not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change this image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. Let's find a meaning. Yes! Yeah, I know that very well. That's like one of Brandon's favorite movies. Oh, really? Yeah. So like, we've watched it. it. We've watched it um, in uh, English multiple times. We've also watched it in French and Japanese. I'm, sh I'm not surprised it's, at all. It's adorable. So but yeah. Oh, yeah, I got it! Got I was going to say Jaws, but I'm like, I don't remember the shark having any dialogue. Oh. Maybe it's Jaws 2. Yeah, he didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. That 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 shark got gypped. <laughs> I know, no dialogue whatsoever. You just had to play up to the stereotype, which is not entirely wrong. Just you know, eating machines. That's but right. no, yeah, I love I love Finding Nemo. <laughs> yeah, so good. All right, well, yeah, I guess that's it. There you go. Thanks, right. guys. Yeah, thank you. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.